This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Mueller team wants a copy of Stone's testimony, his official testimony before Congress last year, a sign that the special counsel may be getting closer to charging Stone with a crime. Flynn has said that he talked with other transition officials, including very senior ones, about his conversations with the Russian ambassador. The American and Turkish peoples have been friends and allies for many, many decades. Turkey was a pillar in the Cold War against communism, and Turkish courage in war is legendary. That is so true. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So we have a three-way chat today with novelist and journalist Karen Schwartz and information war expert Molly McHugh. The plan is to leave no stone unturned in a free-ranging discussion of Mike Flynn, Judge Sullivan's use of the word treason yesterday, and ongoing cyber attacks against our dear old United States of America. The three of us who, full disclosure, have become friends in the foxholes during our troubled times, reserve particular sympathy or contempt for Facebook in the role of these cyber attacks. So the Kremlin has long said that Russia is at war with the United States and is conducting a sustained military intervention into our democracy and our information streams. And if the Kremlin is at war with the United States and has pushed and played Trump mercilessly as its butler, does that mean Trump is at war with the United States, a president at war with his own country. Stop and think of that. What about a former national security advisor and U.S. Army lieutenant general at war with the United States? Yesterday at the non-sentencing of Michael Flynn, U.S. District Judge Emmett G. Sullivan could not conceal his loathing for Flynn's crimes, and he didn't try. What he said was, I'm not hiding my disgust, my disdain for this criminal offense. And then he even proposed, and we're going to discuss this, that Mike Flynn might have committed treason. We're going to get to all that in just a moment. But first, the tweets. Good luck today in court to General Michael Flynn. Will be interesting to see what he has to say, despite tremendous pressure being put on him about Russian collusion in our great and obviously highly successful political campaign. There was no collusion. I hope the people at the Fed will read today's Wall Street Journal editorial before they make yet another mistake. Also, don't let the market become any more liquid than it already is. Stop with the 50 Bs. Feel the market. Don't just go by meaningless numbers. Good luck. Michael Isikoff was the first to report dossier allegations and now seriously doubts the dossier's claim. The whole Russian collusion thing was a hoax, but who is going to restore the good name of so many people whose reputations have been destroyed? 
The Democrats are saying loud and clear that they do not want to build a concrete wall, but we are not building a concrete wall. We are building artistically designed steel slats so that you can easily see through it. It will be beautiful and, at the same time, give our country the security that our citizens deserve. It will go up fast and save us billions of dollars a month once completed. Joining me in the studio are Karen Schwartz, the novelist, and Molly McHugh, the journalist and information war expert. Molly is actually in Slate's D.C. studio, so we are teleconferencing into this trio. Welcome, Karen, and welcome, Molly. Thank you. Glad to be here. We have a roundtable today, and we're doing it remotely, but often Molly and Karen, you guys and I meet up in DMs on Twitter And I've decided that in the middle of an information war, and we can discuss whether we're in an information war or not, the foxhole is Twitter DMs. What do you think? A a wholehearted endorsement. Molly? (laughs) I think that's probably right. We should just remember that they're pretty much totally open to foreign exposure. And Netflix. (laughs) And Netflix exposure, apparently, as well. (laughs) Yes, exactly. We have taken up just basically marginalia to what's been going on in the news Both of you bring a particular perspective to this. Molly, you're a journalist. You've written for Wired. You've written for Politico. You're an information war expert. Karen is a novelist who's written for Marie Claire and is a sort of a friend of mine from before all this. But I will say that we dropped into DMs pretty early. And by early, I mean, was it around the debate? I think we originally dropped into DMs around the debates. And then after the election, we were like hot and heavy, like, wait a minute, something is wrong. Yeah. But the reason that it was important to drag Molly into our DMs is that we were both subject to and hoping to diagnose the information war that was present in this Twitter so-called main room and also eating up Facebook. Do you guys spend any time on Facebook in the Thunderdome? I have never been on Facebook. Nor have I. Because I, I knew what it was from the beginning. <laughs> so, <laughs> What do you mean, Molly? I knew like the number six dude at Facebook. I went to Stanford. I spent a lot of time out in the Bay Area around the early 2000s after I had graduated, but um, when all of this stuff was becoming mm-hmm. a thing. And I remember having a conversation with this guy at like a pool party or something. And I was like, what's that Facebook thing? I don't know what you're talking about. And he sort of explained in very concise terms that it's like this giant data vacuum that's going to change the world. (laughs) And I was like, so I'm not going to be on that then. He's like, no, it's great. You can share photos. And I was just like, not going to be on that. Got it. Okay. I've always been a bit of a Luddite when it comes to privacy and data sharing. So wait, how in the aughts when everyone was excited about a connected world and apps that would bring our mother to tuck us in at night or whatever in Silicon Valley. And there was such a gold rush. How did you, a young Molly McHugh, commit to national security first? That's what I don't understand. It's a fair question. I had been a science person focusing mostly on epidemiology Mm -hmm. and somehow got sucked into Russian language, Russian history, Russian culture as like a second degree while I was at Stanford because the Russian department was you know, four people graduated in my major in that class versus the 498 that were in the biology program (laughs) trying to become pre-meds. So once I sort of dabbed my toes into the Russian world, it was just a totally different texture of learning and experience at Stanford. And I kind of got pulled into that side more. 
And by the time you get to the end of your undergraduate years, because I had never been a med school person, I wasn't focused on doing that. I just wanted to do research. You get to the end of your undergraduate career looking more at sort of language and international relations. And there's really nothing else to do but go to grad school and eventually come to D.C., which is what I did. So I just kind of went in a totally different direction, which is very non-Stanfordian. Almost everybody who goes there stays in the Bay Area because, you know, it's a giant pile of money (laughs) and only stupid people leave and go do other things. But history has favored your view and your choices. Um, (laughs) Well, not financially, but... Possibly on the ability to wake up and look at myself in the mirror. Yes, we've talked about little in DMs about keeping your soul. I want to go back to epidemiology. But first, Karen came to this story in a totally different way, also at a weird angle. Mm. And by this story, I mean Trump Russia, essentially. Tell us the story that I love so much. It's like Twas the Night Before Christmas <laughs> to me. Um, Twas the Night Before, kind of September 11th, even. Yeah. My late husband, who died in. 2007. Yep. He had a small, very random detour from a pretty otherwise stayed MBA career working basically almost a year in Trump Tower in a random corner where they just had office space. Just Trump Tower. Just, just going to use Tower. that word, those words. Just going to use They don't connote words. anything. No. And this was like 2000. And he was coming home every night and saying, it is some weird business over there. Something is afoot Yeah, to the level of, you know, crawling with Russian mobsters. And at that time, I think we've discussed this, that like it was kind of an in vogue thing in Manhattan to go for your bachelor party to one of these Russian gangster yes, mob, we've, you know. Yeah, we've talked about this on the show. Yes. I mean, it, it seems incidental, but there were these places in mm-hmm. Brighton Beach. Mm-hmm. Michael Cohen's uncle right. had some bar near these yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, you went and had like herring wrapped mm-hmm. in plastic and then... And then like bottles of vodka they'd put on the table and stuff. And, and they just, just like, would get us night. super drunk right. and pick our pockets. Right. That's well, what was, I remember. But it was to the level that Mike boycotted those bachelor parties because he did not want to see anyone from the elevators in Brighton Beach. Like he just wanted to disappear into the carpet. You know, he doesn't want Trump Tower from the Trump Tower elevators. He didn't want any more involvement. He'd wear earmuffs in the elevators and like he didn't want to overhear anything kind of thing. And I never knew any other details, really, other than this sort of side kooks that he became friends with and stuff there. But it was very clear that Russian mob, criminal, something's going on. And all these people apparently had, this was one of the things he said in 2000, they all had an apartment. These guys, who were kind of creepy guys, had (laughs) an apartment on the high floors and then worked in the lower floors, in the offices. And they were all friends with Donald Trump. You've called it like a WeWork? A WeWork, yeah. It's like a WeWork slash creep hostel, something like that. (laughs) And one of the guys was a guy named Chuck Blazer. Chuck Blazer, love it. Love Chuck Blazer, who, rest in peace, who Mike actually did know. He worked on the same floor with him, and he was kind of friendly with him, but friendly slash don't stand so close to me with him. Yes. Chuck ran FIFA, the soccer confederation. Yes. And was known, listeners can Google this and enjoy this arcana, which is <laughs> he was known for, he when he was brought in and then became a cooperating witness against FIFA and their scandals, yep. one of the things that he was sort of known for was having a separate Trump Tower apartment beyond the WeWork, We Hostel, for pre-postal for his cats. I think it was $6,000 a month, right? I believe that's the act. You know, money is actually really worth mentioning because even Mike, just for that year, was at a startup, right, in Trump Tower. Yes. And Molly's talking about a little bit later, young Molly, talking about a little bit later when she was in college, how there was this money growing on trees that surrounded Mm -hmm. the internet and everyone wanted to do a startup. 
And that is actually an interesting time for the intersection between American business and Russian business, American culture and Russian culture. So I don't want to push this too hard, but the kitschification of Russian culture here after the end of the Cold War, where bars were called Pravda, Mm -hmm, KGB, mm -hmm. you were supposed to be in these like Rotskellery places. And then the showgirls and the mobsters out in Brighton Beach that everyone dipped down to see as part of some kitsch extravaganza. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was weird. And then with the startups, and I don't think this was as true in Silicon Valley, Molly, but you can tell me otherwise. People were all using Russians to do their back end. There's this whole, and you've hit upon it, it's sort of the kitsch factor, but it's also the purposeful mystique that Russia continues to cultivate, right? Where if you go into any survival store, there'll be all of the Spetsnaz branded crap, you know, the Spetsnaz fighting knife and the Mm. Spetsnaz pocket flask. And you're like, why is it the Russian special forces crap that we're supposed to be like, (laughs) ooh, it's the greatest? But it was the same with Russian hackers. And even from early on in the Internet age, because, you know, Russia sort of became free, right, when all of this stuff was becoming more of a thing. But the image that was partially real and then very much cultivated was this idea that Russian coders, Russian hackers were the ultimate black arts magic guys. They could do impossible things. And it was cheap. You could pay them in Levi's or whatever. Oh, absolutely. And they would do these things that nobody else would do for not a lot of money Mm. and do them very quickly. But yeah, Russian, especially Russian engineers, as we now think of software people, were very much integral to a lot of these early big data related projects and other things in the Silicon Valley. Many of them have either stayed there and done other things. Many have gone back to Russia and built parallel versions of those things. But as we have seen consistently over the last four or five years, anybody working in the space who was at one point independent, and I think there's always the sort of balance on were they sent for or were they cultivated for these purposes or later brought in, these people are highly subject to pressure by the FSB and other intelligence services. Their families get attacked by tax police or sort of pulled in. So, you know, you're going to tell us what we need or, you know, mom's going to the clink. <laughs> and there's been a number of these cases where people who were probably independent innovators and technology entrepreneurs have been pressured into becoming assets of Russian intelligence. And I think we just need to be more aware of that, both in terms of the physical people Mm. side and how, especially during the Obama administration, there was this encouragement of exchange in the space. There were tons of American Mm -hmm. students Mm -hmm. going on exchange programs to the Russian version of Silicon Valley, Skolkova, that they were trying Mm -hmm. to build. And you can look at these, you know, MIT student makes magic code for creepy Russian company as like his project. And you're like, wow, we made these kids do that. But this was this dumb illusion of the reset that there was going to be some different Russia. But I think we really need to be more aware on the human side that there is an aspect here that we need to be more aware of. And again, I'm not saying all Russians are bad spies coming to infiltrate America but they are subject to pressure in ways that we cannot possibly fathom when the state takes an interest in their work. And I think we need to be more aware of that. The other side is what you say is the investment Mm -hmm. and and the amount of Russian money that has come into Silicon Valley that came in early as investors, as huge partners. If you go back pre the horizon of Trump Russia and look at the way that Zuckerberg Jack, all these big personalities were talking about their relationships with Russian investors and entrepreneurs. You know, they're hanging out on yachts together. They're doing festivals together. These are people who share relationships as billionaires. And who else can know you but other billionaires? And they just operate in the slightly different plane of reality. 
that I really think we need to understand because there's all these questions about what did that investment buy them? Mm -hmm. What did they take out of that partnership? And we haven't asked those questions, and certainly Facebook and others are not volunteering that information. Silicon Valley, we haven't talked about it enough on this show, but, you know, it always occurs to me that it was McDonnell Douglas and Lockheed Martin that dominated San Francisco before the tech boom. And obviously, with defense, you didn't bring the Russians in. But there's a way that it's not just an analogy to say that aerospace, that defense turned into the tech business as we know it now, which has such a cute little apple smiley face to it, but in a way enacts the same kind of war, but this time with the Russians inside the Trojan horse. Mm. I mean, you take Yuri Milner, we I started talking about Facebook. He's been Mark Zuckerberg's running buddy since the very beginning, big investor in Facebook, and who knows where his allegiances have been. And the architect of the parallel Russian internet. I mean, there's just no way around it. And I think that that's the thing we really need to focus on is, as you said, with aerospace, these were industries that were understood to be of national security concern. These were defense industries. These were things that were protected. Export controls were extreme and getting around them was very difficult. And other countries, if you look at China, any of the Gulf states, Russia, view these the same way. And we don't. So our technology entrepreneurs are running around like, hey, guys, here's all our stuff. You Mm -hmm. want some? And we have created the proliferation of these tools to be used against us. Russia and China in particular have really understood early and fast the way that the data-driven world can be used against us. Mm. And they are both doing so. And I think we're really on our back foot about this. And instead of doing anything, we spent the last two years sort of locked in this cycle of, oh, does it matter? Mm -hmm. Like, does data-driven stuff matter? And it's just crap. Did it violate Facebook policy? (laughs) Yeah, right, exactly. Internal policy. Internal policy at a private company. Lots of worries about that and Sheryl Sandberg and whether they've apologized enough. And the same technology companies are throwing internal fits about building the cloud for the Pentagon, but they're proliferating tools that are being used as weapons against Americans to the Russians and, like, no concerns there. And I just think, like, we all need to understand Russia is in a declared information war with the United States. And we've been a ton of useful idiots, it sounds like. (laughs) Yes. And we're sitting there pretending like it's not happening. And we cover the stories, which, you know, the other thing I think that Karen and I came together on is why are we covering the stories that Russians invent as though they were news? Obviously, America has always been determined by its history of racism. On the other hand, the ludicrous now that we know racism stoking information attacks that the Russians made when they intervened on Facebook, we now know that some of that social conflagration was a result of that kind of thing, and yet it was covered as though it was news. Karen and I have a mutual friend who we were talking about Len Blavatnik and a mutual friend of ours, a little bit of a socialite, said, oh, no, the Blavatniks are fine because a friend of mine went to Paris with the daughter. Does this seem trivial? No, because it's consistent with the effort to make chic and glamorous and Davosy this global world. I mean, we we now think fondly about would-be globalists. But actually, that was part of the problem, is that you have Mark Zuckerberg and Yuri Milner and Jared Kushner and MBS all becoming this overclass who put their billions of dollars to work on policy initiatives meant to extend, in some cases, the Soviet old Soviet empire or some, you know, Turkish ends. Erdogan sometimes seems part of that club. 
I think that's exactly right. And I think you hit on sort of three things there real quick that are really important. One is the techno-libertarianism that we don't discuss very much, which is very much a U.S.-driven thing. It's not like Chinese tech entrepreneurs think the same way. But this idea that there's this borderless world and the nation of two billion on Facebook is going to be the great superpower and they're inventing their own currency and whatever else, like – That's a really nice idea until you understand the rest of the world doesn't espouse the values that have made us what we are and that give us personal freedom. That seems to be like we moseyed in sort of thinking like the Cold War is over. Like, hi, let's all be friends. Well, and that the battle of ideas is over, right? And it's just not. We thought we won the Cold War. They hadn't finished the Cold War. We were sort of blindly, blithely floating along saying everybody's kumbayaing. It's a small world after all. And they're like, yeah, okay. Except, okay, fine. Give us your stuff. It's a great (laughs) small world. And then the second aspect of that is is what Virginia was just discussing as like this weird billionaire superfabric to the universe. But it's the truth. And again, it's this kind of borders don't matter. Billionaires believe other billionaires are more like them than other people. And they have these weird connections where it's like the weirdest thing is actually the second generation people mm. where the first generation oligarchs in Russia may have been trying to literally kill each other at mm. certain points and still do when they can. But their kids all went to the same European schools Mm -hmm. together. They're all friends. They share private jets to Cannes. It's this totally weird connectivity of especially billionaire socialites that normalize other incredibly creepy billionaires to other billionaires. And then they all sort of start thinking, oh, well, we're all the same. And screw these other people who vote on things. Like, we can just architect a new world together and it'll be great. And we really need to pay more attention to that. And I think the third aspect of the weird money thing that has been underlooked, especially in the Trump universe uh, as it relates to Russia and other things, there's this constant discussion of these systems, especially oligarchic systems, as like mob or mafia states. And it's just not – there are aspects of that that are right, but it is not the right analogy. In in a mafia structure – It's like this Mm bottom-up thing, right? People collect and hand up and hand up, and the guy at the top is the one who benefits and keeps control. But there is like this grassroots aspect that's super important Mm. to how power is generated. And in an oligarchic system, it's all top-down. No Russian oligarch believes they continue on having the privilege and wealth that they have unless Putin Mm -hmm. gives it to them. Mm. And I think that's so important to understand because it's that mentality that is cultivated in these B-tier people like Mm -hmm. Trump and others who are like mini-garks but not real Mm -hmm. oligarchs. Um, And they go and they meet these super billionaires and they see the way that they operate in their own countries and they want it. They want the ability to call the military helicopter to fly them somewhere and they want the ability to like subsume some competitor's industry because somebody allowed them to do it. And they start wanting the aspects of the oligarch universe that they don't have. And that is so infective because as soon as you start hanging out with those people, you think this is normal. Uh, and I saw it when I was working with some of these people in, in Europe. But like you you start thinking it's normal and they sort of suck in other people. And all of a sudden you're all using the same accountants and the same lawyers oh. who are helping you launder money and evade taxes. And then they all end up connected together when you try to do any back research on how is Trump connected right. to Russia or how is this Turkish guy connected right. to whoever. They're all connected because they all use the same machinery of corruption. As you were saying that, I was thinking of some of the stuff that's come out around specifically the Trump Tower Moscow deal and like the Agalarovs. It seems like what Trump wanted was to be an oligarch. And he was so thirsty for this, more so than the presidency. And he sort of seemed that's sort of the narrative that's coming. Because then there's no Justice Department that gets in your way. There's no media that gets in your way. And... As you say, Molly, you can just eat up your competitors' 
businesses, which probably sweeten the pot for him. I'm glad to hear this explanation of this worldwide oligarchy and aspiring oligarchy, because otherwise I keep not knowing what Trump wanted, what Mm -hmm. Jared Kushner wanted. You know, there's some 19th century expression, you can only wear one suit of clothes at a time, so why would you want 10? Yes, there's an enormous amount of greed, I get it. But was all of this for the Trump Tower Moscow, the tallest tower? No. I think it's too literal. I think, Molly, you can disagree with me, but I think we have a tendency to think of everything as like, there has to be the one meeting, there has to be the one document, the smoking gun, smocking. Yeah. (laughs) But it's more what Molly's saying, like just a broader (laughs) picture. One of the zillions of themes of our times is that opponents of crime, like Christopher Steele, are framed somehow as partisan. Robert Mueller, all these Republicans Mm -hmm. with backgrounds in counterintelligence, counterterrorism, national security, are suddenly supposed to be bleeding heart liberals who just don't want Trump to bring back coal. It's just been such a weird thing. And this brings us to the Flynn sentencing, non-sentencing yesterday. Do you guys think that what Judge Sullivan said to Flynn, which to recap is basically, you don't seem very contrite. You hardly seem to have accepted responsibility for the lies you told to the FBI because of your continued effort to frame the FBI as mm-hmm. the problem. Mm-hmm. I could try to think of something from kids trying to tell you, yes. I'm so sorry I ate those cookies, but you put the cookies in the special place and you poisoned yes. me and someone it railroaded me. What do you make of yesterday? These guys don't listen to reason. I mean, there's been this fabric of like these, of all the conspiracists that sort of profit from and feed from and thrive from zombie-like mm-hmm. the Trump presidency, The legal group, and again, Mm -hmm. air quoting that, are the worst, but this judge, whoever, (laughs) Judge Jeanine Pirro, Kimberly Mm -hmm. Strassel, or whatever her name is, but this group of people, the Federalist in general, who claim to have these legal arguments supporting all of the batshit crazy stuff that Trump sort of puts forth, and then they, like, create the justification for it. None of this slowed down, and you saw it sort of driveling out of Sarah Sanders' mouth again, even though they lost their big victory banner of, like, see, we told you, you know, Flynn got off because he was railroaded. Um, Didn't get that, but it's still out there, and it's connected to the broader conspiracy fabric that stupid Flynn tried to stupid leverage using his stupid son's narratives. You know, his son is like this key amplifier of all of the—any conspiracy, Pizzagate, QAnon— you know, aliens are coming to take your guns and they're Democrats, like whatever it is, like he's tweeting it out. And the fact that Flynn's lawyers put that in a legal document going to a federal court, thinking that nobody was going to notice that it was like, we've never previously mentioned Peter Strzok. Oh, but now he's in our document about why Flynn shouldn't go to prison. Are you joking me? So I'm with the judge. I am totally with the judge. And frankly, I like don't think he should have pulled back the treason claim. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. It was like an ARIA masterpiece from this Sullivan guy yesterday. And incidentally, we'd been led to believe that Sullivan was some kind of anti-prosecutor judge or that he might 
find ways to side with Flynn. There was a lot of effort to corrupt or qualify his judgment before he passed it. And there was sort of a way that he, tell me if you guys agree, there was a way that he took back justice. Absolutely. You know? And he said, like, this kind of bloviating Giuliani style about QAnon and what's going to mm-hmm. stick in walls of words are not really going to pass muster with me. It sounds like you sold out your country, Mike Flynn. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that how you read it? That's absolutely how I read it. Well, I think what you were saying before about your kid and stealing a cookie is exactly the way that I I think any mom views what happened in that court in a very specific way. Is like, you're saying you're sorry, but you're not acting (laughs) you're sorry. Are you sorry or not? Because it's time for me to punish you. And I need to know what to do about that, how to punish you, right? And are you still obstructing? Basically, the other thing is that all these, not yep. just do you feel it in your heart and are you sorry, but you were still at the last minute having your son and these other amplifiers well, of disinformation. Well, the judge himself, didn't, in fairness, didn't bring that. That was the subtext, sort of. But, but he literally, yeah. I mean, to Molly's point, that Flynn cross the line here if you look in a different way at the mini me version of this was papadopoulos right where yeah. he all his court documents he's so contrite he's so upset and thing and then he's yeah. going into the cuckoo sphere as we like to call it yeah Hannon, and saying everything is wrong everything is fisa they're after me and thing and this and that and the other thing but he never put that in the court but flynn so-called what they call opened the door i think you know our favorite mimi roca or, or one of the other federal prosecutor champs of our time mm. said that in the documents right that, like you open the door to the charge. It's not quite obstruction. Right. But it certainly compromises your plea. Well, that's literally what the judge said. That judge put him under oath at his sentencing hearing and said, because of this thing that you basically was like, were you coerced? Are you really? You're pleading guilty. Are you really guilty? How am I supposed to? to, Like a mom, I'm telling you, I relate. He's like, right. Yeah, which part of this is the lie here? And I think that was the really interesting thing is the judge literally made him sit there and in multiple questions explain what is the thing that you are lying about here? And the other pieces, I mean, afterward, the judge sort of putting out a new order of uh, limiting Flynn's travel, which probably should have been done before. But, you know, Flynn has been back and forth to the West Coast all year surfing and whatever his celebrity life is bringing him these days. So that's going to be limited unless he reports to the court in advance, uh, confiscating his passport, although I don't think Flynn was traveling internationally that much. Uh, but that's a big symbol. And I think that that what we see is – What the judge made him admit Mm -hmm. was, you're lying about something here. And by saying, and we're going to extend your cooperation agreement, and I'm not sentencing you until I actually believe you have cooperated all the way with the Mueller people, he's saying, I think you're lying about something over there. And that is really significant in a variety of interpretations. It's sort of the, what are you holding back? What are you not telling us truthfully? How? Did you derive from what Sullivan said in the transcripts yesterday that Sullivan thinks he's covering for some of his international shenanigans? Because I'm wondering if you're reading between the lines or if there's a specific line or two in the transcript. I think sort of, the again, the what, what happened as a result of the hearing and then the order coming after that he needed to turn in his passport. But even during, during the hearing where you have the judge sort of saying mm-hmm. it, it, to the prosecutors, I don't understand what it is right. that you are giving this sweetheart deal to this guy for because I'm sitting here looking at a guy who mm-hmm. ran a U.S. intelligence agency and was a former three-star general and then was national security advisor who may or may not have been uh, perceiving that he was going to make money off mm-hmm. of foreign powers from that office while in it and then in the light- White House lied to 
investigators mm-hmm. asking about his communications with foreign uh, actors who are hostile to the United States. I mean, the judge was literally incredulous about yes. all of this in the same way I think most of us have been. And I am not questioning, you know, I'm not questioning what Mueller has gotten from Flynn. Obviously, it is, it is significant. But I think that the judge was basically saying to Flynn, I don't really care mm-hmm. what these Mueller people are saying right now because I don't understand why you're getting this special treatment, which is right. no jail time, move on with your life, make bags of money. Um, well, that, when I mean, you're sitting here, yeah, okay, we're walking too. close and I totally to the, that. something that Karen is you're usually sensitive to. And I think we read this differently. I thought Sullivan and I've heard things from Preet Bharara, mm-hmm. former U.S. attorney, that suggests that Bharara and Sullivan both seem to suggest mm-hmm. that a, a, a plea, a robust plea with Mike Flynn would have him plead guilty to higher crimes than simply lying to the FBI mm-hmm. and also lay him open to a bigger sentence, even if he's fully cooperating. This is not, as you say, a, a Papadopoulos case where it's like he's a small player. He's mm-hmm. a major player, not only for Trump, but freestyling on his own with Erdogan. So why? And I wondered this at the time. Right. And you had an explanation. But I think it goes back to this grave that like all the legal authorities are saying, the grave, grave error that Molly originally pointed out in this conversation, which was bringing this kind of conspiracy nonsense into the court document. Because Preet came out and said this the night before the sentencing hearing, not when Mueller made the original recommendation. He actually, on his podcast, he did say that's a curious Mm -hmm. move by the Mueller team to have him plead to such a small crime. Usually you get better cooperation if they plead to a higher crime because you know all, you know everything. Right. But I'm going to say again that that was sort of in the light of all these additional filings that had been opened up by Flynn's lawyers. And it goes Mm -hmm. to the core of this. Mm -hmm. And the judge, to what you were also saying, Molly, what the judge is trying to figure out is, wait, I have to impose. Let's move back here. Aerial view. We're talking about truth, justice in the American way, right? Mueller is after the truth. He wants to squeeze all these guys to get all the information. So he gets the higher ups, whatever, but he gets the truth and the full story. The judge is here, literally justice. He's like, wait, I understand that you have your process where you want to give him a lower sentence because he cooperated on your ends to make your case. But I'm trying to weigh, I mean, I think he literally says this in the court documents. He's like, I'm trying to weigh what the appropriate sentence for this guy is. And I see what he's given you, what you've told me he's given you, and what you say you want, which I think Mueller changed, by the way, in between the two documents. Mm, Yeah. He's just trying to say, I don't think this balances. And so I think the prosecutors could come back to him and explain more why this other cooperation they had before was very fulsome. Yeah, yeah. But he's literally like, I see the judges having the scales and literally trying to balance. This seems a lot more serious than what you're saying. I'm going to need some more information as to why you really think that. Yeah. I should say Karen is doing the scales of justice right now. She does. She's moving her hands. (laughs) And and that's actually, that is, I think, not incidental because all of us just want some balance. It's just listening to these people who keep on criming and just gunning it in public space on the QAnon and the bullshit of the release the memo, whatever. And just someday, some combination of Sullivan and Mueller and whatever, we have to imagine that there will be a time when they get stripped of their assets, they're forced to tell the truth, and we're down at some kind of baseline. Can we agree 
No. The common sense, normal world we're living in. What do you think of that, Molly? You think it's never going to happen? I think you just have to cut bait with them because they're not tethered. We're like tethered to the reality. Yeah. And they're just not. They're in two plus two is five. And we're two plus two is four. That's the new partisanship. Right. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Will all of the cockroaches eventually end up in a trap? No, I I think that's that's not the nature of cockroaches. I think some of them will. And we will all laugh as they are tossed into the fire. But some will continue on and will continue to be part of this disgusting underbelly of Rudy Giuliani making gazillions of dollars off of aiding Iranians while publicly screaming about Iran being the enemy of the United States or whatever. Like, this stuff is just the new reality of grossness. So I think there's definitely that aspect. And I think that the thing that we have seen now from this D.C. judge, from a few other places, and notably from Chief Justice Roberts, is that there's this assumption that everyone mm-hmm. is corruptible by the Trump Kool-Aid in the same way that the entire Republican Party and many Republican voters and the conservative yeah. media universe have been. And they don't want to describe it as that, mm-hmm. but it is 100% that they are totally corrupted by the lies and conspiracy that Trump has used to build power. They believe they can also profit from it and they want to use it themselves. They believe that this is somehow going to bleed into the judicial sector through their appointment of unqualified judges and (laughs) things like the Kavanaugh thing. And they just I think they really underestimate who Mm. most of these people are. And even what we knew about Roberts before Kavanaugh ended up on the court, where clearly he's trying to reposition the the branding of the court to remove the stigma Mm -hmm, that sort of came from this hearings and. And like, we'll be quiet. We'll do these other things. It's clearly forcing him to be more of a moderate. But the fact that he came out with a statement responding to the president to say federal judges are not Trump judges or Bush judges Mm -hmm. or Clinton judges or Obama judges. These are, you know, nonpartisan actors within the U.S. judicial system. That was a really big deal and really Mm underreported. And I just think that is so much more in line with and sent such a signal to other judges who are not part of this cartoon that is the Trump universe of reality where, yeah, okay, it might be that this is part of a bigger thing and there's this huge story that this one court case is a part of and and all of this is part of something else. But I am not going to let my record as a judge be colored by a decision I make here that will later be interpreted as you let a traitor walk out of here scot-free. And I think that was Mm -hmm. so evident Mm -hmm. in everything coming from that judge And knowing that he saw more information than we saw and was clearly outraged, I don't think it was staged. I don't think it was for the cameras that weren't there, but, you know, for the purposes of of reporting, I really do think that is legit. Like, he is not going to let his entire record as a judge be determined by the fact that he's the guy who let Flynn get off uh, without any penalty, essentially, when he doesn't understand why. It's so significant. He entered into the record for the first time, I think, in in one of these legal documents, the word treason. Yeah. Um, now then he walked it back, though. He did. He, well, yeah. he walked it back. He said, this looks to me like treason. But treason, there has to be a declared war. So Flynn would have to be working for a country, maybe Iran. Well, I think what he did was ask the Brandon Von Grack. <laughs> oh my god somebody reads the documents way <laughs> too closely okay yeah what did he ask yeah. brandon von grack he said did you consider charging him with treason and at first von grack sort of was like um um like did not want to answer it and then then after the break came in they said that it doesn't it didn't rise because they didn't want to show i guess too much of their hand of what they're discussing they didn't want to answer that direction well 
What was so right. interesting is the pre-break answer when the judge says, did you consider charging him with treason? And the answer was, right. I don't he have didn't those documents in front of me right now. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. I don't want to answer no. it. I got to say the right wing press is blowing up about the word treason more than, yep. say, we are exactly. So I want to take that word seriously again for a second. We could be in what the framers can have considered a war when they set up the laws against treason. And obviously, it's not a word to bandy around, but it's also not a word to define out of existence. Like if yeah. Michael Flint a former general, a part of our military, mm -hmm. goes to work for not just Turkey that violates our values internally, but goes to work for Russia, where we have plenty of proxy wars, including with Iran and Syria, and manages somehow to get to have to work for an administration that later, uh, meaning today, starts to act on some of the things that the hostile country Russia is asking yeah. for, namely that we back out of Syria. I mean, he is acting as he and Trump potentially acting as more than unregistered agents, acting treasonously. I don't know. Karen, what do you think? Well, I think the thing that the judge did not walk back was saying you sold out your country and he did not walk that back. And we're right mm -hmm. there. Whether we're going to go and be legal and et cetera and yep. say treason and what's that thing? He didn't walk back. You sold out your country. You sold out your country. And you're a traitor, basically. I think you can say traitor. That's not a legal term. Like if you want to talk maybe divest treason. You know what I mean? But he didn't walk back. You sold out your country. And I agree in the sense, just in the sense that there's like a popular usage of this and then there's the legal terminology. And I think the legal debate is a super important one to have as our enemies redefine warfare as things that are no longer declared. You just do them. But I think popularly, this idea of one with a duty to the country who has betrayed the country can not be defined better mm. than general um, I just want to bring up something that I did not hear in any of the coverage, specifically because of Flynn and Turkey. Yeah. Remember when Erdogan came and they beat up protesters on U.S. soil? Yes. Why? Yes. Nobody, everybody's talking about the Gulen extradition and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But that was an early on bizarro, this is not normal way for a president to have responded to that, which is essentially to do nothing. Yes. Yes. And it was early on. This in the is really this, this is a great thing to remind us of. Oligarchs and uh, authoritarians hate a protest. We know from Putin. Right. But and know, we know from Yanukovych, they will put down a protest. But then putting down a protest in our country comes awfully close. That looks a little in sync with the Khashoggi murder, which is like, it? right. They have a compliant mm -hmm. president mm -hmm. who will let them do their strongman techniques, even on American residents or people on American soil. The Incredible. line is not hard. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> on that kind of activity. And they know it. And how do they know? But there's this whole category, and I 100% agree with you, that the Turkish thug bodyguards walking away from the embassy and beating up protesters was really beyond the pale and the lack of reaction from the administration was appalling. But there is this whole category of X on X crime that is uh, ignored, right. like Russian on Russian crime in other countries, Chinese on Chinese crime in other countries, Saudi on Saudi crime in other countries that typically we ignore. And, you know, Putin can kill Russians in other places. And really, the reaction is like, mm, let's make a police report that says that didn't happen. 
And the Chinese can harass uh, uh, and uh, attack dissidents in other countries or students who have gone abroad to study. And there's like very little response because there's sort of this assumption of like this right. is a national issue that we shouldn't get into. And I think that some would view that Turkey bit within this. But I think this – we've had this Turkey issue for a while. But what Turkey has become is a problem. And yes, it is still a NATO ally. Yes, it's <laughs> mm-hmm. still an ally. But Erdogan has purged and imprisoned tens of thousands of civil servants since mm-hmm. the quote-unquote coup in 2016. He has used this as an excuse to crack down on anyone in the country who still disagreed with him. But there's this sort of progression of Erdogan of Erdogan was doing whatever Erdogan was doing, which is always kind of a weird thing, but with one group of dudes supporting him. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. That's obviously all very interesting and important, but I want to rewind for one second when we were saying about the protesters being killed, you know, here, yeah, and, yeah. and whether or not that's sort of within the bounds of the the X on keeping, X. keeping it in the family kind yeah. of thing. The problem is that we have a presidency now where you have to ask what the motivations are. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem, yeah. whether or not something's in the bed. This is the same, literally, that's the same argument with Khashoggi, right? Like, as well, it's the Saudi, you know, he wasn't, he was in Turkey, whatever, yeah. not our, this whole thing. And, and our relationship with the Saudis, which he, totally. Trump sort of made as if the Saudis were bribing the United States rather than individually bribing him, you yeah. know? And then people will say, people on the left or whatever that is now, will say like, oh, we've had this policy with Saudi Arabia forever and we've basically been bought out by them foreign policy-wise or whatever. But what's going on here with the problem is, is that we have to question if the president has been bought. That's bananas. Yeah. That in the history of the United States, that's bananas. I think this is right about the motivations need to be looked into. I mean, every time we've tried to find a way or the, the media's try to find a way to make what Trump does with Putin or or any of the other oligarchs or, or MBS or Erdogan look like, well, this is in the bounds as the outer reaches of normal. But this is, you know, this has happened before. Well, the fact that he does every single right. one of them suggests definitely, well, more than suggests, we all already know it, that he's in deep with these unsavory characters and ideally it will cost him. Last question. Molly, the Russians have said they're at war with us or that they've, they're have they waging war on us with uh, info ops. Um What's the state of that war? And do you think we are at war? Mm. And how could we act more like we're at war? (laughs) All of these are the right questions. I think uh, the, you know, the Russians have declared that they are waging war in the information domain against the United States and view this as a key asset in their new type of global warfare that's a very guerrilla style But these are the tools of the weak against the strong. And they describe them differently, but that is what it is. They do not have the money to sustain the kind of conflict that um, they would have in the Cold War. These are the ways that they are going to attack us by picking away at the edges until we no longer see what it is that they're doing. And they're doing it very effectively. 
Um, and I think the, you know, the, there were these two reports that came out from the Senate Intelligence Committee this week that had been commissioned from independent academics and researchers and scholars looking at very specific and very limited data sets coming from, uh, I mean, huge, but limited in terms of these were data sets that have been turned over from the big technology companies to the Senate that were identified as coming from accounts that were controlled by the Internet Research Agency, the sort of Russian troll factory, during the specific time period leading up to the election and then after. So even looking just at those limited things, and these reports were um, you know, really effective, comprehensive summaries of, of what has been put out and what is known. There was very little new in them, and I don't mean that as an insult to them. I think these reports are extremely important in terms of getting it all in one place. It is something issued from the government. So at least now there's something since the federal government's been doing who the heck knows for the last couple of years. But within that, what we see is the importance of the tactics, the evolution of the tactics, um, evolution to new platforms, um, shifts after the election where they clearly learn from what worked and what didn't and movement to new things, particularly onto Instagram and to other new uh, sort of meme based platforms as ways to gain different types of access to different audiences. I think one of my home bases, Wired Magazine, calls it meme warfare. Yeah, very much so. And 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 just the different ways. I mean, there's so much texture in those reports that's great, like the extent to which merchandising was an aspect of some of these accounts, but the extent to which, uh, and this has been in some of the Mueller indictments as well, that, that some of these operations were basically self-funding. Either they were generating Bitcoin or raising ad revenue, but many of these intelligence operations were raising their own money to continue to do work hmm. um, in the information domain as part of the way that they were masking their operations. Yeah. Um, which is just all of it is so smart uh, and so low level and so tactical. And I think the reaction right. to those reports has been so annoying for all of us who work mm -hmm. on these issues in a number of ways. The minimization coming from the Russia's not a thing crowd. I think the biggest debate on Twitter has been around Nate Silver's tweets that, you know, this was 0.1% of all tweets or whatever during this time period. So how could it have possibly affected anything? These are the bot which, tweets, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So looking at the just volume numbers coming from these accounts, like this couldn't have done anything. And it's just, it's nonsense. If you look at our enemies are using this, they're pouring more money into it because they know that it works. Other countries are now using this mm -hmm. because it works. The guys who made money off this are still making money off of it because they can sell it to other people who understand that it works. Yep. Just this idea that a giant propaganda disinformation machine pouring narrative into mm -hmm. a space where all of those narratives were absolutely critical to the debates before the election, the debates after the election, the way that divides are being ripped apart in this mm -hmm, country, mm -hmm. that that has no effect. It's like saying, well, yes, there's this gang of rioters with torches walking down the street and there's all these houses on fires, but they didn't set the fires. It was dumb people in their kitchens who set the fires, you know. Right. It's like, no, like there is definitely a connection between yeah. the guys with the torches and the fires. And no, I am not saying these are things, you know, it's it's a that that Russian narrative was a sentiment generated from Russia uh, or whatever. Like, obviously, these are things that existed in the United States, but this is always how they have worked. And so mm -hmm. basically what it comes down to when the narrative is the same, when they're still using the exact same things in terms of conspiracy and whatever else to pick away at the fabric that holds this country together, then you have two options, either the Trump administration, the Trump organization, the Trump campaign, whatever, 
were knowingly the collaborating. The late Trump Foundation, RIP. <laughs> yeah. The late, the late Trump Foundation were knowingly collaborating with or now knowingly benefiting from these narratives because they know this is a mm-hmm. Russian story and right. they're still going to use it. So either knowingly benefiting from or collaborating with in some aspect Russian narrative, which they know is part of information warfare against America, or the Russians understand that what natively comes out of the Trump administration and the Trump campaign's mouth is the absolute most corrosive thing you can use against an adversary and they emulate it. Which one of those do you want to pick, Donald Trump? Mm -hmm. And those are the two options. Either what Trump is is the worst thing in terms of setting America on fire Mm -hmm. or they know that they are collaborating with this force in some way and refuse to admit it. Those are your two options. There's no other third option. So this idea that, that this has no impact on our country is completely stupid. And there's just no other word that I can use uh, for everybody who continues to deny that this had some impact on the way Americans think and make decisions. Well, don't you think part of that? And here's a question is like on some level, some weird level, people who were on these platforms and got this messaging don't care that they got the messaging. Yeah. Why don't they care? Why don't they? Is it just that everybody doesn't want to think that they are susceptible to manipulation or like, you know, advertising doesn't work? That's all it is. It's that kind of smugness or what's going on? I think it's in part that I also think and I can't believe we didn't bring this up earlier in our our overarching DM thesis of dumb, vain and greedy. (laughs) Oh, yes. Dumb, vain and greedy, (laughs) which it's taken over everything. You can look. Yeah, I think there's something going on societally where we've given in to some level of cynicism. And I think we hit upon that, Molly, when you were talking about the judge yesterday. Like, we're a nation of ideals, and we've never really lived up to them. That's fine. You know, it's not fine. We have to live up to them. But, like, the cynicism to say the ideals are nonsense because you've never lived up to them versus attempting to live up to them. I think of Don Jr.'s excuse for the Trump Tower meeting, saying, oh, anyone would have taken that meeting. He Mm. really thinks... Anyone would have taken that meeting. Yeah. And yeah, there, there's a significant DVG, yeah. because of DVG, dumb, dumb vain and greedy. greedy. But there's a significant amount yeah. of people in the country who would have taken the meeting. Where is our civic engagement? Where is our sense? And this is what the judge was crying out for yesterday. You know, like, yeah. hey, guy, this is the flag. You pointed the flag, you know. Yeah. Like, there's some level that something's been corroded that they could capitalize on and all this stuff and that that, that kind of report comes out and people kind of say, well, shrug. That's yep. why I like hearing both of your stories and also even when we share money troubles in DM because mm. we've everyone's <laughs> got them. It's really interesting to remember Molly at Stanford seeing the possible option, the paved royal yellow brick road to riches at Facebook or Google. Karen siding with her husband to <laughs> shut out Chuck Blazer, shut out the mob. I'm going to stop going to the kitschy right. Russian joints. Right. There is this point, And I actually, I didn't have a place to work for a while and was unemployed. And Someone said, why don't you come and work in this WeWork? I'll get you a card because I work for a Chinese media company that supplies <laughs> me a couple WeWork spots. <laughs> and I mean, who says no to that, right? right? Who says no to that? I don't know who these people are. Maybe they are just doing feature stories about American life for Chinese readers, which they seem to be doing. I did say no to it, but only because I got another place to work. I'm just very, very grateful that the two of you and fortunately some handful of other Americans took the took the road of poverty and integrity because we need people to toe that line. Everyone has to follow Pithy Widow at Pithy Widow. That's Karen on Twitter and at Molly McHugh. 
M-C-K-E-W. Thanks again for being here, guys. Thanks Thanks for for having having us. us. And that's it for today's show. Tell us what you think. We're on Twitter and we listen to your feedback. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And you just got to join Slate Plus. In the spirit of the holidays, slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. It's only $35 for the first year. And you'll get to hear all the podcasts, including Trumpcast, without ads. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. You can find him on Twitter at JohnnyD23. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.